In the Red Sox, blogging the Red Sox.com podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Campbell, coming to you on what was supposed to, be, supposed to be the day before opening day, but is instead the day before the day before opening day, thanks to the rain in the Bronx. Uh, anyway, I'm more than happy to be welcomed to welcome on uh, MassLives.com's Chris Cotillo for today's episode. Uh, Chris, how are you? And I wanted to ask you how the weather was in New York, but judging by uh, your background, it looks like you're still at home. Yeah, that's uh, always a pleasure to join you. But uh, yeah, this morning uh, was a little bit weird. I got the uh, was on the way to the airport, fly down to New York, cover the workout today, and they canceled the or they postponed the game, canceled the workout for today. So ended up flipping around, spent an extra night at home, and we'll be uh, heading down tomorrow morning, cover the workout, cover the game, and come back home Friday night and leave uh, Chris Smith to cover the rest of it. So um, not the season, just the series. But you get you get what I mean. Yeah. How has the past week or so been for you? Because, I mean, you were in Fort Myers. Then, I mean, you witnessed the highs and lows of the NCAA tournament with North Carolina knocking off Duke, but then losing the national championship. Now you're back home. So how has the past week or so been for you? A lot of sleep on planes. I'm kind of used to that, though. Um, you know, the I, I was heading out of spring training on the 31st anyway, and Chris was heading back down. So it just worked out that, you know, I had the weekend free and was off and was able to go down to Chapel Hill and, and watch from there the Duke game. That was as good as it gets. And, you know, obviously I say blowing a 15 point lead at halftime in the NCAA title game is not what anybody wants to see. But uh, if uh, if there's a moral victory for a, a blue blood, it was it was this with um, beating Duke twice, ending Coach K's career kind of the right way. So it was a blast and uh, a nice little nice little break, a nice little diversion, even though they lost uh, to get to get done right before the season starts. Cause it's a, you know, it's a fun slog and it's a good time, but it's um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work and it will be for the next six months or so. Do you think Roy Williams celebrated regardless, even though he was wearing Carolina blue the other night? No, I think he's, he's done with his allegiance to Kansas. He, he doesn't have a diploma from Kansas. So, um, you know, I'm sure if there's a second school that he would be fine with winning it, it would be them. But, you know, still, he he coached, you know, obviously a bunch of the guys that are on the Carolina team. So he, um, you know, has allegiance to them. And, and obviously it's his alma mater. So, you know, different story there. So speaking of your time in Fort Myers, uh, just how was it in general? I mean, were you there for minor league camp or did you get there as soon as the big leaguers got there? Yeah, I got there as soon as the big leaguers did. I was, you know, kind of a well, I was there before I was there before minor league camp even opened to kind of explore and went to FGCU where they were training. And I was actually there the day that Chris sale, uh, broke his rib cage or stress fracture and he looked completely fine. And then, uh, I decided to leave the, uh, leave the campus to go eat, ended up in like kind of a sports bar and was writing about Chris sale. And he ended up walking in and, uh, made no signs of pain. He was right out to lunch right after, um, apparently getting hurt. I guess it, it took a few days to manifest, and that was the last time he's thrown. So, um, you know, I, I always joke. I was joking with people. I, you know, tried to show an initiative by coming down to Fort Myers before and seeing these private workouts, and the guy gets hurt out for two months right in front of me, and I couldn't even tell. But he couldn't even tell. So I, I get, that's my excuse. You know, once Major League Camp started, it was kind of a rush. It was, you know, not just the normal, you know, entry interviews at the beginning of spring training or who's going to make the team or positional battles, but obviously 
lots of rumors, you know, from the jump, they signed Deekman and Strom, you know, Travis Shaw, uh, Robles, and then, you know, the big one in Trevor story. And that kind of dominated about a week. So it was, uh, there weren't as many dog days as spring training. There normally are. There's a lot of days where, you know, nothing happens and it's kind of, you know, create your own story type days this year. It was, it was a little different, but, um, you know, I always say spring training is the, the longest, uh, and, and kind of most grueling part of the season for, for everybody. Um, you know, the, the players sometimes get to leave early in the morning and go golf, but you know, for the beat they're they're long days and it's a totally different schedule because everything starts at 8am. We're all used to, you know, having to be in the clubhouse for the first time at three o'clock in the afternoon. So it's, um, it's fun for a little while. It gets, you know, grueling by the end. You know, I, I was only there for three weeks this year. I've been there longer in the past, so that wasn't that bad. Um, I know for, you know, beat riders with families and being that far away, it's, it's tough, but, um, at a certain point, it's like, all right, let's get going. It's time for the season to start. And, and obviously we're here right now. And uh, being at, in the clubhouse, JetBlue, that was your first time in a clubhouse mm-hmm. pre-COVID, right? Yeah. And that was, you know, it was interesting. There's guys that have been on the team for a long time that I've never been in the clubhouse with just because 2020, we weren't allowed in there. 2021, we weren't. So, you know, being able to kind of get to know, let's say Christian Arroyo or somebody like that on a more personal basis, just by having small talk with them. You know, that's super valuable. That's the part that, you know, from the outside fans, I don't think always ever care about, oh, the reporters want access, they're they're complaining, yada, yada, yada. But the best stories are told because you develop trust in those settings. Over Zoom, it's impossible. I mean, there's guys who were on the Red Sox that, you know, none of us got to know, really. Uh, you know, Renfro for a year in the Zoom era, Kevin Pillar for, you know, three weeks in the Zoom era, whatever that was. You know, a bunch of, got a bunch of guys in 2020, not, not many of them you know, notable or, or performed well, but, um, you know, just to go in and, and be able to run something by or talk about golf or, you know, the NCAA tournament, Kevin Plowecki, you know, Purdue grad was kind of obsessed with that. We were going back and forth about the games and all that type of stuff. And just, you know, those kind of things that it's, it's impossible to, um, ever create over zoom or, or even on the field and BP, when you try to grab somebody for one second, it's just, you know, I think as a, as fans, people should look at, you know, the quality of stories that have come out of spring training in the last few weeks. I mean, obviously the ones I'm asked live, but something like, you know, Alex Spear sitting down with Chris Hill yesterday or the day before and him talking about how he feels like a failure to the Red Sox because he's been hurt for so often. Like those things are built, you know, and those things are built uh, in those clubhouse relationships. So it really matters, I think, a lot more than people realize. And, and obviously it's a huge deal that we'll be, you know, back in all year. Uh, did you watch yesterday's game by chance? I don't even watch the spring training games really? when I'm there. So no, I, the, uh, the interesting part about uh, the, the spring training setup is that the games are, are really, you know, only useful if in my mind, if, if uh, they're useful, obviously, you know, fans getting to watch and the team getting to um, kind of assess different guys, and especially prospects. I mean, Cutter Crawford's performance in games, I think was kind of the reason he made the team. Um, but for us, that's kind of a time where the clubhouse is open starting in like the third inning of those games. So we're not in the press box watching. We're, you know, in there talking to guys as they're leaving before they're out to play nine or 18 or whatever it is. Um, it's a lot of back and forth. So, yeah, that's kind of the part that I don't know if it goes undercover. I don't know if it's the right amount of coverage. But, uh, yeah, the games are not not a focus. You know, it's funny in the press box, like we'll all be we'll all be standing outside the clubhouse and here dirty water playing in the in jet blue and be like, Oh, I guess they won, you know, but, but I didn't, we're not even usually aware of the score. Just that's just kind of the cadence of spring training. It's kind of bizarre. And uh, when you left 
before, after your three weeks there, what were your main takeaways just in terms of roster construction or what you thought the roster would look like come opening day? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously kind of your, your uh, as a, on a micro view, there's some surprises. I think, you know, Cutter Crawford to me came out of nowhere. Um, he's a guy that I actually talked to before camp over the phone for, for something. And then once he, you know, kind of emerged, people, uh, you know, started catching on and, and realizing. And Chris Smith, my partner, has been very, you know, high on him for a while. Um, Tyler Danish coming out of nowhere. There's always one or two of those in the bullpen, it seems like every year. You know, I know that. They, they want Darwinson to go into the lab and really work on some things. I still, you know, had him projected for my opening day roster. I didn't think that he'd be sent to Worcester, but those things happen in the bullpen. Um, you know, I thought Ref Snyder would make the team and even falsely reported that for about five minutes the other day over a text snafu with the source. Um, so, you know, there was a few different things. Um, I still think you look at this roster and I think, okay, there's a lot of high-end talent. I mean, at, you know, they have some of the very best players in the game, whether that be Bogarts or Devers, Martinez, Story. Their lineup stacked at full strength with Sale and Paxton and Ivaldi and, you know, Pavetta, Waka Hill, Hauk, all those guys. That's They do have rotation depth. That's going to be tested early, obviously, with Sale out and with Paxton out. But I look at it and I see incomplete in a bunch of areas. You know, I just – you see – kind of what the bullpen is and there's no one I would trust to be the closer who I know is a bona fide option. I mean, not Matt Barnes doesn't seem like Garrett Whitlock's going to have that role. Matt Strom is a guy who might have that role. Hands of Robles. I mean, there's, there's a ton of options, but no one that you feel like really comfortable about right now. And in the outfield, you know, it seems like it's going well, the experiment with Christian Arroyo out in right field, but it's asking a lot for Christian Arroyo and JD Martinez to play a lot of outfield. It just, it is. I mean, they, they could have used a guy, you know, I know I just mentioned Kevin Pillar, but a guy like that, you know, or, or somebody, you know, or a couple more bullpen arms. It just seems like, you know, they're asking a lot out of even Cutter Crawford, out of Tyler Danish, if he makes a team, Phillips Valdez, Austin Davis, like these guys are, you know, they have things that the Red Sox like about them, obviously. And they've had, you know, in various, um, some in the majors, some not some success, but it's, um, it's still like, you know, that lockdown option. That's why, during the lockout, my roster projection, I had them, you know, signing or, or trading for Josh Hader, you know, and getting Colin McHugh, like bona fide guys in the bullpen. You know, Diekman did not look good during spring training. That's no secret. Strom did. Um, Matt Barnes, velocity down. I mean, there's so many question marks there. So um, it's incomplete as of now. And it's also kind of tough to envision how they're going to fill those spots. Um, they're trusting internal guys to do a lot. And uh, we'll see in April how it turns out with a very tough schedule. And what did you think about the pursuit of Sia Suzuki? Because, I mean, before he signed with the Cubs, it kind of seemed like that was a good fit given their need for a right-handed bat. But, I mean, after he signed with the Cubs, it just kind of seemed, in my view, it was kind of anticlimactic, you know? Like, he signed with the Cubs, and that was it. There was no, like, uh, fallback on it. Like, usually yeah. you get a lot more criticism when they don't sign a guy, but I didn't see it for that. I think with that, it's just – I think it's – it's there's just so many rumors – there's so many rumors flying with him, you know, the Koji thing and different media reports. And it was like media reports were coming out every day. Like he's, he's going to sign with the Red Sox. And the next was like, he prefers a West coast team. And like, it will all ended up being BS at the end. You know, we didn't really hear about the Cubs until the very end on him or like it was a done deal with the Padres at one point. Um, you know, so I, I kind of, you know, I take all reports with a grain of salt because there's so much, especially, you know, with, with, big name free agents that you never know exactly what's going on behind the scenes. But, um, you know, the, the Red Sox, they, they draw their line in the sand of where they're willing to spend. And if the player is going to get more money elsewhere, 
they're going to, you know, Dombrowski, you know, I don't want to call it an impulse control problem, but maybe it was at times where, okay, he's not going to be outbid for a guy. You know, even Ben Charrington was made sure he was not outbid for guys and Theo Epstein, you know, you look at you know, the Trevor story deal, like they ended up getting him for, you know, a good price and 140 million because there was a flood of shortstops. He was the last one out there. He needed the team. Um, he had to, you know, if, if he had his, his way, he'd probably have signed for more money and stayed at shortstop, but that's just the reality of the situation. The musical chairs are coming to an end. And I think it's a good fit for both the player and the team, but you know, they're not going to be the team that blows you away with your first offer. You know, it's not a coincidence that all of Heim's big moves have come in, you know, right at the trade deadline with Schwarber, not early July. Um, you know, it's kind of an interesting contrast. Dombrowski would be willing to sign somebody in November or December. Heim Bloom is going to wait until February or March. And that's just, um, you know, that's how you get the best value in his mind. And we saw that again this year. So do you think, like, if, assuming Bloom is in Boston for, like, the next five or six years, per se, do you think they'll ultimately land a big international free agent? Like, not a prospect, but, I mean, like, someone of Suzuki's caliber because they were in on um, Hassan, I don't know how to say his name, but the guy who signed with the Padres last year. And then after 2020, I guess that was last year too, it was uh, the other pitcher from Japan, uh, Sugano. So you think that will happen? I mean, they signed saw more, but I'm talking like big name, flashy guy. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to know. I think they're obviously, they'll they'll turn over every stone to look for talent, you know, whether it be um, in America, Japan. On, I mean, really, they're going to look anywhere they can to find, you know, marginal upgrades to find, you know, superstars. And if the guy's a fit, you know, they're going to look into it. And that point you made about them, waiting for the last minute. I mean, why do you think that is like, why do you go, you go from an old school guy like Dombrowski who wants to get things done quickly, I guess, to someone like with the bloom resume, they're waiting to the last minute to do everything just about. Yeah. I mean, I think the Red Sox are always kind of looking to go back and forth than they have in their last few regimes, you know, between like Theo wants to win and then, you know, he's the heir and he is like a prospect hoarder type. And then, okay, let's overcorrect the other way and go to Dombrowski who's just going to spend more than anybody ever. And then, oh, now we need somebody to fix up the farm system. So let's go get, you know, Heim Bloom. I think they've just kind of gone back and forth, kind of overcorrecting the flaws of the previous guy. You know, I, I don't really, I think the people clutch the pearls with prospects a little too much. I mean, you know, let's look at some of the guys that, you know, they were never willing to trade um, who didn't, you know, oh, we, we can't make a big move because we have to hold on to Henry Owens and Blake Swihart, like those types of things. You know, you never know. Those are lottery tickets. On the same token, you know, that White Sox-Red Sox trade with Kopech and Moncada for sale. I mean, both teams ended up winning that trade. I know sales been hurt a lot, but you won the title in 18. That's the ultimate goal. Um, I just think, it's, like I said, an overcorrection, but, um, you know, Bloom knows that this team, you know, after being two games short of the World Series last year, has talent. He wouldn't have gone and, and signed Trevor Story for $140 million if he didn't. At the same time, he's not going to mortgage the future in a major way to do that. And I think that was the type of move that, while a big move, you didn't have to give up tons of prospects. I mean, there's really – I'm trying to think. They've, they've given up one legitimate prospect since Bloom's taken over. Ramirez. Um, yeah. I mean, so that, that tells you a lot. Uh, going back to spring training now, who who didn't make the team? I'm talking about like non 40 man guys here. Like obviously Darwinson will be a backup, but do you think someone like Ref Snyder or Christian Stewart, Yomer Sanchez could make an impact at some point this season? I mean, those guys all have big league time, um, you know. And I think the Red Sox are facing a 40 man roster crunch. You know, that's kind of an interesting subplot to that. They don't have a lot of guys that they can you know DFA or outright or whatever. 
you saw Hudson Potts went unclaimed, but the next two guys they tried, Kyle Tyler and Jason Rosario, both get claimed by teams. They just don't want to lose talent for the sake of losing talent. Um, but of course, those types of guys are, are always super important, whether it be Franchi or Yolmer Sanchez, Ref Snyder, Kristen Stewart, you know, a lot of guys with big league experience and different skill sets. Um, and, you know, I think Worcester has a good mix of those veteran types and also obviously some really exciting prospects and, um, you know, whether it be Duran or Downs or Casas and, and a few guys on the pitching side. So, yeah, I think, you know, Alex Cora loves to say it takes a lot more than 26 guys to win a World Series. In this case, it's going to take a lot more than 28. Um, you're going to see a lot of guys kind of in that revolving door, less so than in previous years because of the option thing. But, um, you know, they're going to need probably some of that depth. And I still think that at some point, whether it's, you know, soon or sooner rather than later, you know, they're they're going to need outfield help. You know, I just think you're asking a lot from Christian Arroyo and J.D. Martinez, two guys that, you know, J.D. Martinez gets banged up every time he plays in the outfield. Christian Arroyo has shown that he's really good when he's on the field, but that's been a struggle. You know, I know some of his freak injuries, some of it might not be, but um, now you're asking him to play in a new position. What happened last year when that happened at first base? So um, if everything works out, you know, if Arroyo or Dahlbeck slides into a right-handed hitting outfield role, that would be great. It would obviously allow for Casas to come up, but there's a lot of if, 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 if with this roster to me and uh, not a lot of certainty like we've seen in previous years. So you think if they were to prioritize a trade between, I mean, they're going to make a trade, obviously, but you can prioritize dipping into the 40-man pool before going into the other prospects, like with someone like Bello, Groom, Duran, Dahlbeck, Hauk. I mean, those last two aren't prospects, but younger guys with years of control, you think they'd tempt, be tempted to trade them first? Yeah, I mean, I think a guy like, you know, Ronaldo Hernandez, even to bring up a name, probably not a lot of people know, like, you know, catching prospect could get you something, get you a prospect that's off the 40-man roster. I mean, they just, they need spots. You know, I think they need two spots right now for Sean Robles. And, you know, they already sent sale on the 60. They're probably not going to do that with Mata. I mean, this is very minutia stuff that, you know, only a certain aspect of the fan base cares about, but that's that's uh, how in the weeds we're supposed to get, right? Um, you know, I think there are, I just, I, I wrote this today. You think back to 2020, they had like 20 guys they were able to cut from the 40 man and none of them got claimed because they were all not major leaguers. And uh, now it's, it's a little bit different. And, you know, there's not that churn just because those two extra spots are 60 extra jobs. Those are 60 guys. And, you know, a lot of those guys could, could have gotten cut at the end of spring training. Instead, teams are keeping them. Obviously they're not getting extra 40 man spots, but um, you, know, you get the point. It's just, it's, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Um, you know, could Tyler Danish get DFA'd already? You know, who knows? They 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 have a lot of options that um, are not very clear that I'm sure they're talking about behind the scenes. Well, so but would you say Ralph Garza is probably the guy first up on the chopping block? They were. I think so. Someone. No, no disrespect to that guy who I know absolutely nothing about uh, and have never seen in person, but uh, probably yeah, I, I guess. Speaking of guys who are either on the forty man or probably going to be on the 40 man soon enough. When do you, when do you think Tristan Cassis will make his debut? Will it be like uh, Bobby Dahlbeck in 2020 or it'll be sooner than that? Well, that was like August, but it was also like 10 games into the season. So um, <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't know on that. I mean, they want him to push by showing up and, and playing well in Worcester. Um, but at the same time, you know, Dahlbeck is a guy that they really like too, and he's shown flashes of brilliance. You know, it, I think if he can develop into that right-handed hitting outfielder or utility guy, that's his best course of action to stay in Boston. Otherwise, I think he's a prime trade candidate, you know, you know, at some point as the spring turns to the summer and Costas comes up. Um, 
and so you know i i think that it, it really depends on performance i think mean, he's, he's a guy that's checked literally every box since he's been drafted you know first round pick high expectations and you know, to, to the Red Sox credit, the last few years, I'm not counting Cameron Cannon because he wasn't the first round pick, but their first picks or their first, you know, draft picks in every draft of like, they've hit the steps that they need to, you know, York has had a great professional career so far. Um, you know, Marcelo has too, and, and a very limited, um, we saw him one more against Evaldi the other day, you know, those types of things or, um, you know, Casas everywhere he's gone, whether it be the Olympics or anywhere he's, he's hit and he's, he's shown up and he's worked hard and impressed everybody around him. So he's going to keep forcing it. You know, I, I would be, you know, shocked if he's not up by the all-star break, obviously. Um, and then the, the Dahlbeck talk will, will start if he's not having a good year, then, you know, we'll see One thing last year is not only people really realize this or know this, but he was really close to being optioned triple a on many occasions you know they really were thinking about it they were you know waiting for danny santana who just tested positive for quote unquote performance enhancing uh drugs um you know they were they were looking at that guy over dahlbeck or they were looking at marwin over him at times just because of you know different things that were going on which to me is is crazy in hindsight and, and some things worked out and Dahlbeck's favor he was able to stay on the roster and then perform really, really well down the stretch. And they want to unlock that guy kind of over the course of a full season now. Did Schwarber really help there? Or was that just kind of something like a fluff piece? I would, I... What of him helping in the cage or wherever that was? Yeah. Schwarber helped everybody. He was a perfect fit, you know, just uh, in the, in the clubhouse on the field, everything and not positionally necessarily, but I mean, he really embraced Boston. The guys loved him and, um, it's just once JD opted in, I think that the Schwarber thing was all was over for, for the Red Sox, at least, even if he was a right handed hitter per se. Well, he's not, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just it, it just didn't work out just positionally. All right, let's talk about some guys who are in Worcester right now who could probably be in Boston, like Jaron Duran, Darwinson mm-hmm. Hernandez. Uh, just t- tell me what you thought about their springs the decisions to keep them in moisture and whatnot i don't know darwinson you know he's a guy that they really um they talk about he's not doesn't have that much time in the majors and so they want to get him those reps i think this interesting like two or three inning starter role and get your work in in between is interesting stretch him out a little bit you know you can go multi-innings you're a more valuable weapon um you know he's really a two-pitch guy and i think that 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 ultimately hurts him that's why i don't think he's ever going to be a starter obviously um, they look at him as a reliever that way and, and they want him to develop and kind of get some more development time. So that to me was, was not super shocking, but a little bit surprising just because, you know, there's like four lefties ahead of him, you know, Davis was out of options and he's a guy, I think that impressed him down the stretch. If you look at kind of some of the deeper numbers, some of the performances, um, and his confidence to tell Juan Soto to get back in the box there, you know, all that type of stuff. I think he, he made an impact larger than what, you know, we kind of expected when he was traded for Chavis. Um, Strom, Diekman, Taylor, and all those guys are ahead of him um, as well. With Duran, I think the most impressive thing with me for Duran was he opened up in a way that uh, we haven't seen from him, um, at least publicly talking about kind of his mindset stuff from last year and, and going up to the majors and feeling like he couldn't play his game. He had to play a game that his teammates would respect or whatever. You know, he I think he had three stolen base attempts. We heard about how fast he was and we saw it, you know, over time, we've seen it 
now, you know, there's two like electrifying plays I can think of. Obviously, the Little League home run at Fenway last year and then scoring from second base on a sack fly a couple weeks ago in spring training. Like, okay, this guy can be the most exciting player on the field when he's out there. The Red Sox wanted him to get back to that. They wanted to use his legs, bunt, steal, all that type of stuff. And, and he was really interesting one day opening up to us and talking about, you know, those types of things that he was dealing with, trying not to, you know, be the rookie that disrupts kind of the um, the flow of everything last year. So I thought that was fascinating performance wise. Um, you know, I think, you know, they all said he looked fine, whatever, but it's interesting to me that he was never really in the mix for an opening day spot. I mean, he was optioned early heading in. He was never projected by anybody in the media to be there. It just feels like, um, I don't think they caved to the public pressure last year. You know, I think after the all-star break, they wanted some reinforcements, but, um, you know, he's still a young guy with, with a lot of, a lot of potential. And, um, you know, to me, they, uh, that was a good lesson, I think, for the public. And, like, you don't know that these guys are a sure thing. You, know, you remember how much clamoring there was about bringing Duran up last year. And, you know, when it came down to it, he probably wasn't ready, you know. And so um, that's why, you know, I am very careful with when he calls guys up. But still, it's like you can never be too careful. Um, and now is he kind of a forgotten guy? Like, fans are all excited about Casas and you know, even guys like Crawford and, and guys who were, you know, electric on the mound. And, well, Duran, you know, I guess in the mind of some is it's kind of already come and gone. That's not the case. He's still very high potential, but people don't talk about him enough or at all. So you think there are lessons learned from Duran last year that they're applying with Cassis this year? Because I, mean, I, Cassis... I don't know that that's true. I think it's I think it's better a better lesson for the fan base. And like mm-hmm. these guys know what they're doing when they're going to call people up, you know, like it's and. You know, not everybody's going to come up and be a superstar right away. I mean, you look at, you know, guys in the past, whether it was Pedroia or um, I think Ellsbury struggled and got sent down his first year or, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of guys that, you know, they, they want him to come up and stay, but sometimes it doesn't happen. I Mike Trout was horrible as a rookie, wasn't he? Or pretty bad or whatever, Judge, I think. So it's, this happens all the time. It's not it's not time for, you know, concern right now. What, what's Durant, 23, 24? Well, he's older, yeah. Um, is he younger than me? I always hate when they're younger than me. Yeah, he's 25, but he's only he's basically a year older, a year younger than me. So, still counts. Devers is the one that always bothers me because he's been in the majors for longer than I've been on the beat, and he's younger than me, which is irritating. But whatever, he's a superstar. Uh, turning to Devers now. I mean, a lot of people think that Jose Ramirez extension. I couldn't tell you them off the top of my head, but they think that's a template to get an extension done with Devers. What do you make of that? Um, I just was checking in with somebody on my phone since we've been on here and, uh, they are, it's very unlikely that a deal gets done. So, um, take that for what it's worth. I mean, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of progress there. And I, you know, I tweeted that last night too, but I just checked again. So it just seems like there hasn't been any progress and people are joking today. Oh, they got 24 more hours now to get a deal done that the opening day was pushed back. But, uh, I think if they were close enough, that deadline wouldn't matter. I don't think they're very close. And um, I know both him and Bogarts have said, or at least through the media, they've said um, they wouldn't negotiate in season. But do you buy that? Or do you think, I mean, like with Bogarts in 2019, he signed, like it was in Oakland, weren't they in Oakland when he actually right. signed? So, I mean, is that like a soft deadline? Um, I, I could see the deadline being pushed back a little bit this year just because it was a three-week spring or whatever, you know? I mean. I think 
I think that's possible. But at the same time, you know, these guys kind of want to play and they don't want to focus on that stuff. That was only, I'm sure that was basically worked out and we just didn't hear about it and it didn't get finalized until four days later or something. Um, but it doesn't seem like there's progress yet. And, uh, you know, the clock's ticking, obviously. How big of a storyline do you think it would have been if um, the Red Sox and Devers didn't agree on terms and uh, they had an arbitration hearing in season, like during an off day or whatever? I always think that's a little overblown. Obviously, the Mookie, the last two guys that went to arb hearings were Mookie and Erod, who didn't resign. But um, I always think it's a little overblown. I mean, in a perfect world, would you give a guy an extra 500000 to avoid going to talk to him and talk badly about him potentially in front of him and his agent and all that stuff, maybe, but um, if the offer is big enough, none of that stuff matters at the end of the day. But I also think as I've said a billion times with Mookie, the offer he accepted from the Dodgers was not one he would have accepted from the Red Sox because the goalpost had moved thanks to COVID and all the economic uncertainty of that too. So in regards to arbitration hearings, maybe you can help me out here. Do the two sides exchange numbers or is it like uh, there's no like mutual, there's no like uh, middle ground. Like I know there's no middle ground to like change it, but it's like once the numbers are exchanged, there's no um, finagling with that. that I mean, they sense. can, they can go back and forth. Uh, they, you know, a lot of teams go have a file and trial, which means you set your numbers and then we're going to see the mediator. But if it's, you know, we've seen a lot of agreements get done. That can be kind of BS at the end of the day, but once you're in the room, you know, with the mediator, the arbitrator, the panel, whoever it is, um, it's, three people i think um and they either pick player or team there's no we're not going to pick a midpoint so it's a weird weird process that you know at the end of the day it just is about cost certainty you know people don't really understand it and uh, i don't blame them for it well uh, turning to more pitching pitching staff news now i mean you mentioned you saw chris Seal get hurt break his rib in person right i mean that's how you call it yeah so um, how do you view his latest setback? And you think maybe even like James Paxton could make his uh, 2022 debut before him? Yeah, I don't think it was a setback. I think we just kind of all misinterpreted how quickly he'd be back, you know? I mean, they didn't put a time timetable on it ever. They never do. But, um, you know, I think part of it was that there was a roster crunch too. They're like, all right, we want to get Danish on and we need to do that. And so what's the way to do that Sail to the 60? Like, yes. Does that mean that if he's ready on June 1st, instead of June 6th, they can't add him? Yes. But, um, you know, they just kind of a, a, a cost benefit there bang there. Um, you know, I think Paxton is progressing pretty quickly, but they're going to be careful with him too, because in a perfect world, they have him for three years. So they're not going to rush him to, be good down the stretch this year you know there's uh it's always you know teams beat the hell out of their pending free agents because hey what 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 do they care by the end there's always kind of that theory but that's not the case with him he's he's a guy that they have you know control over for a couple years after so um they'll be careful there too and you know i think they have you know five capable starters in the rotation and they have whitlock they have crawford who's going to be on the team if he needs to start he has plenty of experience doing that um you know, some guys at the minors, Winkowski, Siebold, all those types of guys. So, um, you know, they have depth. So uh, they're going to they're gonna be careful with those lefties, I think. What do you think of them piggybacking Whitlock off of Hill on the day's Hill starts? Yeah, it's an interesting kind of new wave way of doing it. You know, and I think they were thinking about doing the same thing with Sale and Hauk. 
which you just get a mirror image of two different guys in that game. But um, with, with Hale and Whitlock, if you're going to have a 30 mile an hour difference between, you know, guy A and guy B then hitters are going to be thrown off by it. And I think that that's a way they could see themselves combating having a, a, a bullpen. That's not very good, or at least on paper, not very good where, you know, you could have one day where Hill goes five and Whitlock goes four and okay you save your bullpen now for a full day and rest, you know, the other eight pitchers or whatever it is. I think that that's one way to do it, um, which it'll be interesting. You know, I think their plan was to have Whitlock pitch in relief uh, on opening day. Now that, you know, that is um, Friday, that might change some plans, but they take it a day by a day at a time. You know, we, we saw last year that the rotation at the beginning of the year was much different than the rotation at the end of the year. We've seen that every year, you know, like Nathan Evaldi became the Red Sox most important pitcher down the stretch in 2018 or one of the most important pitchers. He wasn't on the roster until July 31st. You know, they tried in 2019 with Andrew Kashner, who was brutal. And last year, Garrett Richards and Martin Perez were in the rotation for a while. They basically survived with those guys, went 500-ish in those games, dealt with Garrett Richards, you know, with the sticky stuff and then all that debacle. And then by the end, it was how Sale taking those spots. So there's like I've always said with them this year, they have depth. It's going to be tested early, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, how concerned are you about Matt Barnes? I mean, I know you said something about earlier, but if you look back at his second-half struggles, I add that on to his velocity drop this spring. Really hasn't been a good, like, six or so months for him. Yeah, ever since the extension, right? Um, yeah. Which I'm not going to be that guy who says, like, oh, he gives money, and all of a sudden it was different. It's just not, that, not how it works. He's a very hard worker. Um, and, a, you know, in terms of – pitchers and, and guys who are always working at the crafts a smart guy who's always kind of in the lab and i know we talked to i think rob bradford about that for a while this week um i just i, I just don't see how you can trot him out there as a close as the closer on opening day and say like oh we trust this guy you know to me it's just that's a big jump and uh i would guess if i had you know to to if i had to guess right now i would guess that that's what they do i, I disagree with it um but at the same time, when he's on, the ceiling's unbelievably high. We saw that for the entire first half last year. So, you know, who knows? Uh, the, the organization knows him really well. You know, he's obviously been here for a while. And I've heard personally that he's like, there's there's guys Bloom likes, and there's guys Bloom really, really likes. Matt Barnes and Jackie Bradley too, are, Jr. are two of them. And, um, you know, that's why it was no surprise to me that Jackie came back. But and not no surprise to me that, you know, Barnes got a big extension, a relatively big extension for a reliever. Well, that's interesting, interesting that you say that because, I mean, Bloom and Bradley's first year together was the COVID year. So right. would, you, would you say that their, uh, that mutual respect came together in spring training before the shutdown? You know, I think a lot of it came together with watching from afar, obviously. But then I think a lot of it came together in 2020 when Jackie really took a leadership role with all the social justice issues. And, you know, those were, I'm sure, tough conversations. Obviously, we weren't privy to them. And um, between Jackie Bradley and, and Heim Bloom in that first season, you know, and I think that they formed a bond that way. You know, obviously, I think we've seen Heim Bloom, you know, not always like just because he really likes a guy. Does, that's not the only reason he's going to acquire him. Like the fit had to work and that was a creative move for Renfro, all that type of stuff. But, um, you know, I think that that plays a role where they know that, OK, let's get this guy back in the lab in our place. We know him really well. We know what kind of person he's going to be. Um, and he's going to improve the outfield defense when he's out there too, because Renfro, despite, you know, the big arm and all that type of stuff, you know, a lot of errors, a lot of misplays, more balls lost in the lights, I think, than any other outfielder in the history of baseball. So, um, 
it'll be interesting to see. He's a very key part of this team. He should be a complimentary part of this team based on what year he had last year, but all of a sudden he's in a big role again. Uh, are they hoping they can replicate what he did in 2020? Because, I mean, he was like a league above average hitter all year. Obviously, sh- yeah. shorter sample size, but... Right. And with, you know, a lesser role. I, yeah. I think that you're not going to see him against lefties. Who you do see against lefties, that's also not a sure thing with Martinez and Arroyo, but um, at least offensively, you know, they're, they're going to rake as long as they can stay on the field. But, I mean, it's it, with Bradley, it's going to be, you know, go get some hits against righties and, you know, hit eighth or ninth and keep the line moving for the big boppers. I feel like they know, you know, they have six or five or six guys at the top of the lineup and even, you know, Dahlbeck and those types of guys that are going to be, you know, producing the runs that – all of a sudden, if your eighth and ninth guy aren't hitting the rest of your lineup that good, it, it, you might be okay. And going back to the bullpen piece, I mean, if it's not Barnes, I mean, the other guys you could have close. I think, I know Deakman has a good amount of saves, Brazier, but I mean, do either of those guys really inspire too much confidence for you based off the springs they just had? I'd say I'd have Strom and Robles over them. Um, so based on that, I guess you can say no. I mean, I really don't care about the spring training performance unless it's something like velocity being down. I think there's something weird going on with Deakman slider from what I've read. Um, with Barnes, obviously the velocity is a concern, but hey, if he's pitching the ninth inning at Yankee Stadium on Friday afternoon, or let's say Sunday night baseball, like are there going to be a few more miles an hour on that fastball because he's pumped up? Probably, you know. Um, so I, I don't think the spring training performance really matters. I mean, when I always use this stupid analogy, but the 0-16 Lions were 4-0 in the preseason, so that's how much these types of things mean at the end of the day. And uh, when do you think Josh Taylor will be back? Is there a timetable there from his back strain or whatever it was? No, not yet. Um, you know, it's still something that's lingering. So I wouldn't I wouldn't think it would be anytime soon. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the, the IL rules change. I think it's 10 days in April and 15 once you start in May. So, obviously um, – you know, who knows? Maybe him going to the 60 could be the 40-man move. I have no idea. Been kind of quiet on him just because there's, you know, five other lefties in the bullpen or whatever. So, I mean, this is obviously looking down the road some, but, I mean, once they're ready to activate Taylor, do you think they'd consider taking another lefty off their roster, like Austin Davis, per se? they got to ride the hot hand in the bullpen. Whoever it is, whoever's getting outs, they're going to keep, you know? So, that's, yeah, who knows? At that point, things probably will have changed a little bit. You know, that's why... You know, Chris Smith mentioned him for the 18th time. He tweeted something that was pretty good the other day. Like, we obsess over this opening day roster. This roster is going to be different by Saturday or Sunday. Like, that's true. Um, probably they're going to make a move. Or Though this year with the option rules, it could be a little different. But, you know, think about the guys that took the – that were on the even the ALDS roster. How many of those guys were not on the opening day roster? You know, whether it be Robles or Schwarber or, you know, Brazier was hurt. Um, just, you know. Uh, Danny Santana, Travis Shaw, like, I mean, what, 10, 10 guys were not on the opening day roster. Matt Barnes was on the opening day roster and an all-star closer, and he wasn't. So things change. You know, they, they don't all happen at once, so it kind of makes it seem like they don't change that much, but that's how it goes, you know. They're, it's going to cost – it's going to take you a lot more than, you know, 26, 28 guys to, to get through the season. We've seen that even more in recent years than ever. I mean, I don't know how many players the Red Sox used last year, but it felt like 60 70 maybe 55 60 i know the COVID outbreak kind of juiced those numbers out a little bit with players that i had never heard of were all of a sudden playing on the, for the team i cover but um yeah it's 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 a long it's a long 162 games so whoever's on the opening day roster is um you know they're all not going to be there at the end and we'll see who is i know you already talked about christian arroyo a bit but 
Uh, the Red Sox hopeful they can like maximize his potential by making him a utility type player instead of an everyday player. I think so. Well, that's kind of the um that's the hope. You know, he's still a young guy too. He's like 25, 26, former first round pick. You know, like I said, he's been kind of a guy that you know, when he's been on the field, he's been really good, well liked in the clubhouse and energy, you know, kind of big personality guy. So they hope that, that can manifest itself over, you know, let's say 100 games instead of, you know, 50 like it did last year. I always look at that total. I think he played like 55 games last year and it was even, you know, fewer than you'd guess because he, it felt like he had an impact when he was out there. So um, that's the hope is that they can get him get him healthy and get him in a spot where he can play and, and bounce around and kind of impact the team. So, um, you know, that 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 is there is a lot of potential there still. I'm just thinking off the top of my head now, but I mean, the last two first round picks they had, the one not like they obviously didn't draft Arroyo, but like Blake Swihart, Michael Chavis, for instance, right? Former top picks, top prospects. They kind of stalled at the big league level a little bit. So they moved to the outfield, and now neither of them are with the organization anymore. So, right. <clears throat> move to the outfield to sign of, I mean, it's not like giving up on them, but I mean, isn't Arroyo, hasn't he already established himself as like a good defensive second baseman? I think he did last year. I think they were pleasantly surprised by that. And they're also pleasantly surprised by how fast he is. He's pretty quick. I just think it's a, you know, a necessity thing. If, if Trevor Story's there, then Christian Arroyo is not going to play second base very often. Mm-hmm. And they want to, they like him enough to keep him on the roster. Like they could have just gone and signed a right fielder and a right-handed hitting right fielder and just traded him, you know, like, but they didn't do that. Um, so I think that's worth something. Now, on that note, who is the backup shortstop going to be? Because I'm pretty sure I heard Trevor Story say or read him, uh, read that he uh, just wants to play second base all year. Doesn't want to play shortstop on days like Xander's off or whatever. Jonathan Aruz, uh, Christian Arroyo, I mean, whoever. I, they, I don't think there's going to be many days. If things go well for the Red Sox, there won't be many days where they need a backup shortstop anyway. Kike, I mean, they got guys who can do it. True. Alex Cora, too. <laughs> And um, I know back in your predictions post from January, you wrote that this will be JD's final year. Do you still believe that now? Yeah. Yeah, I think that especially, you know, with uh, an expanded um, universal DH, rather, I think that the market gets to a point where, you know, they're not willing to pay up. And I think that the roster dictates that, you know, they're going to need one of these good players to move to DH, whether that's Dahlbeck in a year or Devers down the road or Bogarts, if they all these guys come back or whoever it may be. You know, like JD's contract was a huge, huge win for the organization, a huge, huge win for him. Sides were a perfect fit. He's a guy that really embraced it. But at the same time, I don't think they want to extend for much, much past this year. And um, that's I still stick by that one. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about his, I mean, I guess you can call it decline. Cause I mean, if you take away last April, he's pretty much been not the best hitter in the world. The last two seasons. Yeah, obviously 2020, but I, I think we can discount that just based on the weird buildup and all that type of stuff. You know, I, I think it's a very important year for him and a walk year. It's not a maybe walk year. Like it has been the last three, it's a walk year period. And uh, there's nobody who works harder. You know, like he's never available to the media because he's always looking at the iPad. So, um, you know, you can you can bet on that. Um, yeah, I think the numbers were a little inflated based on how good April was. He kind of got off to a good start. And then it was like, well, no matter he wanted to go to an amazing start. And then whatever he did for the rest of the year, it was kind of like, 
okay, well, uh, he's, his numbers still look good. He's still, you know, got 900 OPS despite the fact he's been average for five months or whatever. So, yeah, make or break. I mean, not make or break for his career. I think he'll go down as kind of a, a really good player and a Red Sox legend, you know, for everything he's done. But if he wants to make a lot of money one more time, not that he needs it after, you know, 110 from the Red Sox, but this is a big season for him. Speaking of Milwaukee Airs, I mean, you talked to Carlos Correa a few weeks ago. What do you think he'll do after this season, assuming he has the kind of season he's capable of having with Minnesota? He'll squeeze out a destination for Xander Bogarts. So that'll that's kind of the big takeaway in the Red Sox world. And with the same agent, that's an interesting, interesting little thing there. You know, we went up and said, you know, Carlos Bogarts, we said Carlos Correa getting 35 million a year. How much does that help you and help your market? And he said, I don't know if it really helps me because now they're going to be on the same market together, you know? So um, that's all. That's an interesting piece too. So you'd say the odds of both of them opting out next year, this winter are like 90, 95%. Yeah. Unless someone gets hurt or has a horrible year. You know, I think Bogarts, Bogarts does what Bogarts does. He's not worth 20 million. He's worth about 35. So um It'll, we'll see if the Red Sox are willing to pay that. Do you think he could pull a semi in or story and become move to second base? Like, as a free agent, I mean, not this year, but, like, in free agency because, I mean, obviously the metrics don't favor him even though he considers himself a good shortstop. As Kike Hernandez told me the other day, if someone were offering him the right number, he'd pitch lefty. So, <laughs> yeah, anything's possible. How are you and Kike doing? You guys good now? Yeah, great. It's new new year, great year for everybody. That's good. Uh, speaking of guys in walk years, how do you view the catching position with uh, Christian Vasquez and Kevin Ploiecki set to become free agents? Uh, well, I think Mike Zanino's a natural fit in free agency next year because Heim Bloom had him before. Mm. They'll see what they have in the kids, you know, not just Wong and Hernandez, but there's some other guys, you know, whether Cole it be caught, caught him or some of those other guys who could, you know, they're, they're looking for that air, I think. You know, in terms of guys who have the most to win, no, most to gain, most to lose this year, Christian Vasquez is right up there because people don't talk about him. He had a really bad year last year. Um, the Red Sox almost declined his option, and now you're looking at a guy who could either be the top free agent catcher or a guy who's kind of, you know, just looking for one-year deals. It really is that that big of a gulf um, with him. And you know, again, another guy who's had a good career, but um, wouldn't be surprised, or I would probably be surprised if he comes back. Um, either way. Was the pursuit of Jacob Stallings legit? Well, he's North Carolina Tar Heel, so I hope so. Um, no, I, yeah, I guess. I mean, I never, I didn't hear that personally, but it tells you a lot. You know, they were willing to look at him, and they almost declined Vasquez's option. I mean, they get they're always thinking about the future, obviously, and um, I think they they don't think their future includes Vasquez personally. Uh, well, I'm a big Sean Murphy guy. I don't know if you know much about him in Oakland, but he's like 26, controllable on a team that's selling all its assets. So uh, right. the match could be made there, potentially with Frankie Montas too, former Red Sox farmhand. Maybe. But that would require giving up prospects, and we haven't seen time do that yet, have we? So I don't know. So one big sticking point this offseason has been about COVID vac- vaccinations, especially in the AL East with the uh, Toronto's requirements. So, uh, right. do you have any scoops on that per se? Um, I have a good idea of who is and who isn't, but I don't think, you know, we've kind of held a policy that, you know, if a guy wants to reveal who is uh, that they are, they can. And if they, you know, it's a personal choice to get it, uh, I think you should get it, obviously, because it works, but it's a personal choice to get it. And then it's a personal choice to reveal. And so I think. You know, we've done, you know, we've asked guys and if they don't want to say, they don't want to say, you know, 
I will say, I think there's players on the Red Sox that people assume are unvaccinated that are. Yeah. You know, we, we, we know for sure that Chris Sale is not because he, you know, has said that. We know for sure now that Bogarts and Arroyo are because they said that and Pulecki's getting it too. So, but none of that stuff matters right now. Um, I mean, it does from a, a grand scheme of things point, but none of that stuff matters until Monday, April, April 25th, 25th. Yeah. when they face the Blue Jays and we will know. Like, there's no... Like, if you're vaccinated, you're going to play. If you're not, you're not going to play. You're not going to be on the trip. And, like, okay, so if the Red Sox surprisingly put a guy on the restricted list the day before, like, they will know he's not vaccinated. So, you know, um, until then, they're they're cleared to play everywhere. So, but, yeah, it's it's been an interesting story to, to follow just because um, it really is playing a role, and the Blue Jays are going to have the greatest home field advantage in the history of sports this year. So, um, because they're all vaccinated there, because they have to be. On paper, the Blue Jays seem like the favorite to win, favorites to win the division. But, I mean, they were kind of like that last year a little bit. It came up short. So, how do you view the AL East this year? Yeah, I think, you know, the Vegas odds in them are astronomically good. Um, I think they're like the favorite in the AL, AL, AL and the second favorite, I think, to win it all. They're going to be great. You know, the rotation is probably the best in the division. Their lineup has been, you know, all those young stars for a long time. You know, so I have them probably winning it. I haven't completely looked at it. I got to do my predictions today, but um, I'd probably go with them. Yeah. How much of their success do you think hinges on George Springer being healthy? Because I mean, he was an impact player last year, no doubt, but he didn't play a full 162 or even close to that. Right. I mean, they have a lot of guys that can step up and they would be the best player on a lot of teams, whether it be Springer or Guerrero or, you know, Teoscar Hernandez at Fenway is like the reincarnation <laughs> of Babe Ruth. So we've seen, you know, they have guys all over the roster. And I think the rotation is the piece, you know, between Barrios and Ryu, Gaussman, um, Kikuchi, even that was kind of an under the radar signing. Nobody talks about like they're talented. Um, bullpen is a little bit of a question mark, but they're very talented. I know there's no championships won on April 7th or 6th or whatever it is, but um, they look good and they'll be tough and the Red Sox will face them, you know, seven times in the first like 25 games. So that'll be an instant, instant tell to you, like, and everybody, you know, how they're going to be. All right. And since you're safe, you still have to do your protections. I won't ask too much about that, but do you think the first, the top four teams in the division will all finish over 500 this season? I think so. I don't know if that means they make the playoffs because the problem with it, with being in a good division and facing a bunch of good teams is that those losses to those teams probably pile up. And so, you know, one of the other contenders somewhere else, I, I don't think uh, maybe you can probably rule out Oakland, but you know, the angels could be good. I say that every year it never works out. Seattle could be good. Detroit, um, you know, Minnesota kind of stacked low key, despite the fact that they had a horrible year last year, they obviously went out and got a bunch of guys. So um there's always a surprise too. We've seen that time and time again. I mean, last year, look at what the Giants did. So, um, it's it's a tough it's it's a tough division and but it's a tough league too. And uh, a lot of good teams and uh, probably a lot of teams that are going to be in it around July 31st or August 1st or whenever that important date is. So there's a real chance the Orioles lose triple digits again this year. I think so. Yeah, I mean, they're that's a tough draw for a rebuilding team to face those four teams all the time. So. Next year's the year you're going to be rebuilding because you're not going to face, you're going to get 20 fewer divisional games and uh, cool National League travel for beat riders, most importantly. I thought it would have been cool if they signed Correa kind of like as a face of the rebuild. Didn't happen this year, maybe next year. Who knows? I mean, the yeah. like Elias connection. Right. That's true. That was an interesting. I don't know how, how far in they were, but I did read that. All right. And uh, finally, since Alex Cora is entering his second year back, 
uh, how many games or how many wins do you think he's worth? Basically, if that makes sense. It's a great question. I think, I think a lot, you know, I think he really connects with players and has really gotten the most out of guys and he's really beloved in there. I mean, there's not many, there has not, have not been many contentious relationships between Alex and a player. And, and with, yeah, I was one. That was before me though. The, uh, I think that, you know, the, what he adds is not just that he can be like best friends with a lot of the players, because that, if you go too far that way, that's not great either, but he can be a disciplinarian and he can really, you know, calls, call guys out and he can have a temper, you know, and he can be emotional and that's, he kind of balances it perfectly. You know, I think it, we've seen that over time. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I don't know the number. It's always an impossible, impossible question, but, um, there's a reason they brought him back, even with all the baggage, you know, it was a lot of baggage, maybe some of the most baggage we've ever seen in that type of situation. Um, you know, the Astros never considered bringing Hinch back and, you know, the, the Mets haven't talked to Beltran since not that that was, that was a little different, but you know, that for, they, you know, it took a lot to bring him back. They did it. Obviously the first year last year was a success and especially based on what they did in October. And, you know, I think, uh, I think if uh, barring something shocking and, you know, sometimes managerial tenures come to an end before you expect, because that's just what happens. I mean, who would have guessed even Dombrowski would have been fired in 19 at that point. But I got a feeling it's his job until he until he wants to leave now. Who is going to be his tough love guy this year with Eddie Rodriguez in Detroit? Is it going to be Devers, Bogarts, one of those? Uh, well, I think Devers has been that guy in the past, too. And I think Devers has even surpassed that um, because now he's a superstar. And, OK, it worked. Um Darwinson was a good candidate, uh, but that's Chad Tracy's job now. Um, <laughs> Vasquez is a guy that they have a great relationship, but I think that they, they know they can get more out of him. And so, you know, they, we saw that last year. That was tough love playing Kevin Pulecki a lot down the stretch over Christian Vasquez. You know, that doesn't always manifest it in a way like he's going to critique him publicly. But, um, you know, they're, Vasquez is probably my pick there. Looking forward to see Christian Vasquez maybe play some more infield this season. Yeah, if that's happening, I think something's gone wrong. So, but they always do that, you know. Christian Vasquez at second, Dahlbeck at short, and I don't know, Steve Hewitt from the Boston Herald at third. I, I don't know. They, they find ways to come up with these crazy, crazy formations that you're like, and as someone who is the youngest person ever to keep score during games, it's always hard to keep track of. All right, and going back to the whole prediction thing, I mean, I won't ask you anything specific, but will the Red Sox make it back to the playoffs this season? I say yes, but it's going to be close, and, you know, they're going to have to fight and claw for it. And, um, you know, I just was saying on my own podcast, it's not released yet, but um, you're going to find out really early on what this team has. Three against the Yankees, three at the Tigers, who are good. Four against the Twins, who I just said were stacked. And then three against the Blue Jays, three against the Rays, four against the Blue Jays, like... Okay, the first three weeks of the season, you're going to know, you know, I mean, we saw them get off to a good start last year, a horrendous start in, in 19, horrendous start in 20. Um, and look at kind of, you know, you can't win the division in April, you can lose it. And they're going to have, you know, especially those seven games against Toronto, you know, especially if they're shorthanded. So you'll know pretty quickly. There's no break in the schedule until that three games against the Orioles and in, in late April, they don't get their layups like they thought they would at the beginning of the year. So um, you'll know right away. And are you looking forward to a packed house at Fenway on opening day for the first time in what three years? Yeah, I think that's always, you know, I, I get there as early as possible that day usually. And 
this I'm just looking forward to the press box windows being closed in April after we had to keep them open for you know COVID protocols. That's the worst. The worst part of opening day at Yankee Stadium is the press boxes, no windows. It's just outdoors. And so, um, yeah, I was packing before I got an Uber and had to come back. Um, and I was I was packing like I was covering a game in Alaska. So, um, but they're only the, I only got the one game, and then and then that that'll be it for my Yankee Stadium until. Uh, late in the summer when it's much, much, much more pleasant to be there. All right. Well, uh, Chris Cotillo, thanks for joining me today. Uh, you can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Cotillo, read his work on masslive.com and listen to his own podcast called uh, Fenway Rundown. Uh, Chris, is there anything else you'd like to promote before we go? I think you covered it, man. Thanks a lot for having me as always. No problem. Thank you. Have a good one.